Good evening. My name is Ronnie. It's good to be with you. It's my privilege, of course, to celebrate this Good Friday. This is the day in which the Christian church remembers that our God hung on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago. Uh, if you've heard me, you know it's not uncommon for me to say that even if you don't believe in the gospel, even if you don't believe in the cross of Christ, if you could understand all that it means and its its implications for you today, that even if you have trouble believing it, you would at least want it to be true. And you, if you've heard me preached, of course, you've sensed that I often feel a burden to carefully appeal to your reason and logic in order to believe in the Christian faith. But here's what I know about us. We're not simply creatures who scientifically or uh, neutrally evaluate a thing and then accept or deny a faith premise based on the evidence. The opposite is actually true. We all have these hidden interests that we are protecting, and so we construct arguments that help us to defend what we already believe. We are not really looking for truth. We are just defending what we already believe. Why? Because we are selfishly hardwired to protect our interests, not to look for truth. And that's why Christianity is so difficult for so many people. And so knowing this about humans, all of us, I want to discover with you the implications of the crucifixion because it might actually shape how you see your interests. You might not know this right now or from this current vantage point, but I want you to know that we all have a vested interest in believing that the crucifixion happened, the crucifixion happened and that it was a death unlike any death in the history of the world. And so this evening, I'm going to play that out for you. What I'm going to do is this. I am going to represent four dilemmas that all humans have, and then I'm going to seek to explore how the cross of Christ solves it. This normally here at Trinity, we take a passage from the Bible and we explain it like um, what we call expositional preaching. But tonight, I'm going to do something a little bit different. I'm just going to together reflect on the cross and... Uh, discover how we desperately need it to be true. So with that, let's go ahead and begin. The first dilemma is what I'll call the dilemma of regret or of guilt. Let me tell you a little bit about me. I have an extremely sensitive conscience. I have been known to feel inordinate amount of guilt. Totally inappropriate. So one time, my son Micah, when he was one year old, I had him on my shoulder, right? I'm just walking around with him. I didn't realize it, but as I was walking, I wandered um, to a place where the ceiling dropped. My shoulders were getting tired, so, you know, I wanted to let him down. As I had done a thousand times before, I put my hands under his armpits and I firmly thrust him straight up, you know, so that I could lift him over my head and back into my arms. I kid you not, I hit his head so hard against the roof, I could hear his head echo, like a coconut hitting the ground. My son recovered, but I did not. This moment still haunts me. I mean, I lost sleep for days. How could I be so careless with my little guy? 
I mean, to this day, I can still hear the sound, a pain that I inflicted. Like literally, if I let my imagination go there, it can make me anxious again. And my son is like 14 years old now. This is inordinate guilt. And this story is only one notch in a life filled with regret and guilt. I mean, I have done so many dumb things in my life. I have so many regrets, so many stupid decisions in my life. Uh, you, you, if you know someone, for instance, who struggles with substance abuse or addiction, that's actually usually a way of escaping the guilt, like clouding up the, clouding up their minds so that they don't have to think about things, to, noise, right, to make the guilt go away. And so the question is, is there any rest from our regrets or guilt? Now, some of you, even as you hear me tell you about my experience, you realize that you're nothing like me. You uh, perhaps sleep way too well at night. Nothing in your life condemns you. Now, I want to say this carefully, lovingly, but clearly. If you live with zero regrets, it is not because you lived a good life. It's because you are a borderline sociopath. Your, no, I mean this, your conscience is way too weak. You know, it's funny enough because our culture is actually socializing us into becoming sociopaths. All of our lives, we are told, don't let your culture or other people make you feel guilty. You do you. You get to decide what is right or wrong for you. We believe, our culture tells us, that the enlightened person is a person who is free from guilt. But here's the deal. If you live like that, then you will live a life devoid of hope. Uh, and let me show you the connection of this. So years ago, I was counseling a gentleman who um, had an affair on his wife. And so there I am with him, and he is showing no remorse. In fact, he is feeling good about it. And this startled me. Here's why. I knew that it was just a matter of time until this man plunged into a deep, dark despair. So pastor in New York, Tim Keller, he has noted that when a person says, nothing should make me feel guilty or, or tell me what is right or wrong for me, then what you mean to say is that there is nothing more important than you. There's another, nothing bigger than you. See, guilt is our last reassurance that something exists in the world that transcends you. If you have nothing to sacrifice for or nothing to serve or feel guilty for, it's because nothing transcends you. If there is no guilt, then there is no hope because you have nothing to live for or nothing to die for. If you do not have guilt, you have no hope. It's for this reason, for people who have been caught up in society's advice to not allow anyone to make you feel regret or guilty, those same people are unbelievably pessimistic, cynical, depressed. And that those adjectives are what totally characterize this moment in our history. So here we are. All humanity has 
a dilemma with Gret. This is a human problem. Either we are crushed under our shame and guilt, or we don't feel it at all. And depression and cynicism is knocking on our door. And listen, the crucifixion responds to both sides. So like on one hand, the death of Jesus says, listen, you you totally blew it, but you don't have to pay for your sins. You don't have to hate yourself. You can't hate yourself. See, because God thinks you're worth it. You are so worth it that God gave up his only son. The crucifixion is evidence that it is God who assigns your value, which he says is infinite. And he's the one who gets to decide, by the way. Your guilt is dealt with. No more self-hatred. No more self-flagellation. Trying to pay for your sins. But on the other hand, the crucifixion shows you that you really are indeed guilty. I mean, you don't feel guilty, but you are. And the situation is bad. There's no room for arrogance. Because if you were the only one to have ever lived, Jesus still would have needed to die on a cross. And so when we look at the cross, we must confess, I did this. There is something bigger than me, and there must be a reckoning. But because there is something bigger than us, although it is uncomfortable for our consciences, but because there is something bigger than us, our life has a meaningful layers of hope. You see that? I believe that the crucifixion deals with our human dilemma of regret and guilt on both sides of that, unlike anything else. Now, the next problem is what I want to call um, humanity's dilemma of anger. That is, uh, we have it. <laughs> we have anger. But we don't know if we should. And let me kind of let me set up how we got here. So, like a quick review of the 20th century shows that it was the bloodiest century ever. So between like the reigns of Stalin, Hitler, and Mao, 200 million people were killed. Now think about this. Like interesting comparison. Like the awful crusades uh, of the Middle Ages which we learned about like in seventh and eighth grade history or whatever, it spanned roughly 200 years. Historians estimate that 2 million people, 2 million people were killed. That's a lot. But that is a fraction of deaths that we saw just in the first half of the 20th century. So leading up to the 20th century, our collective, at least in Western, in the Western world, our collective vision of God became increasingly moralistic. So the, the Western world thought, you know, if you're a good person, God will reward you. If you are a bad person, then you will be punished. It was very a very quid pro quo version of God. God is a sanctified balance sheet. But other than that, he's removed and uninvolved from the world. But then, of course, the 20th century happens. And wonderful people, by the millions, are destroyed by the most dreadful world wars and dreadful dictators the world has ever seen. It appears that God was unjust, or he wasn't keeping the balance sheet. Or more likely, he just didn't exist. 
it appeared that the traditional God died under the injustice of the bloodiest century. Sometimes in our culture, uh, our friends who have like doubts or whatever, it's expressed like this. They'll say to us, there can't be a God because if there was, there wouldn't be so much suffering or injustice in the world. Now, here's the problem. If God died under the injustice of the past century, then when he died, he took with him any framework for justice. Listen, if there is no God, what right do we have to be angry? I mean, we are angry, of course, but why? Our anger at its most basic essence is a protest that things are not the way they should be. There should not be suffering and injustice. But by saying this, we're assuming that there is a way things should be. There is a right and a wrong way of doing life. But who says so? Who gets to say so? Do we just vote on this? If there is no God, then there is no ought or should. What is, just is. See, our anger is actually problematic. We should have anger, but anger is a moral emotion. And without a God, it makes no sense. Do you remember the the Nuremberg trials? Um, if, if you don't, it just uh, it was that time right after World War II. Um, everyone wanted to identify and punish the Nazi soldiers who were responsible for the horrors of the war. But every time a Nazi soldier was questioned, well, what did he say? He said, it's not my fault. I was just following orders. An old uh, Westminster Seminary professor, Dr. Edmund Clowney, he brought to my attention a German playwright, his name Gunter Rutenborn. Uh, he wrote a play called The Sign of Jonah. And the story follows the logic of the Nuremberg trials. So every German or Nazi official was asked, did you do it? Did you know this was happening? Why did you do it? And the response each time was, it wasn't me. I was just following orders. It was the person above me. And this scene is repeated over and over again until everyone realizes precisely whose fault it was. It was the person at the very, very top. It was God's fault. And so in the play, they they put God on trial and they find him guilty. And he is sentenced to becoming, uh, to become a, a human being as a lonely wanderer on the earth, deprived of his rights. He himself will ultimately die. Additionally, he will have a son who will die so that God experiences the agony of losing a child. And when he does, he will be disgraced and ridiculed. So Dr. Edmund Clowney like, notes that like all these guys are perpetuating human injustices, and yet God is the one who has to die? Yes, that's exactly what happened but in a way that is far more profound than our 20th century philosophers slanderously even dared to utter. See, the philosopher said that God is dead and he died under the injustices of the past century. But listen, God was way ahead of this. 2,000 years earlier, God stepped out of heaven in Jesus Christ 
God was never removed or aloof. He was always involved. He lived a poor life marked with suffering. He was the only innocent person who has ever lived, and he took injustice upon himself, and he died. That's the crucifixion. God did indeed die under the weight of injustice, but he took your injustice. He died in your place. See, you're the guilty one. I'm the guilty one. We can't pawn our guilt off on someone else. But Jesus died in our place as our substitute. And so in this way, your your anger and your, your, your sense of injustice, it remains intact, right? See, this version of the death of God actually dignifies your anger. It, it, it dignifies your tears. It says, yes, you have the right to be angry at injustice. See, our anger finally makes sense. It has a basis. Why? Because there is a God. Only God's existence can philosophically give weight for our sense of justice in a way that validates it. Only the crucifixion solves man's dilemma of anger. All right, I know I'm going through these dilemmas quickly. Uh, let me get to now, um, let's move to our third dilemma. So so far we looked at our dilemma that humanity has with regret or guilt, and then also our dilemma of anger. So our third dilemma is that we have a propensity to either deny death or deny life. Theologian Alexander Schmemann, in his book For the Life of the World, he says it like this. He says, secularism, or um, a world that's exclusively material, right? So secularism tends to deny or hide the reality of death. Culturally, we avoid it until the very last moment. I mean, we're like stuffing our faces with blueberries and non-GMO products, hoping to live forever. We buy billions of dollars of beauty products to remain ageless. And when death does come, we tend to deal with it as hygienically and unobtrusively as possible. You see this in the ordinary appearance of our funeral homes. See, funeral homes attempt to look like any other home. And inside, the funeral director tries to take care of things in a way that no one would notice that they are sad. There is a strange conspiracy of silence concerning the blunt fact of death. And the corpse itself is beautified so as to conceal its deadness. Secularism is a death-denying culture. Now, because this is a case, there's been a, a religious reaction. So religious people, they see death and disease rather than health and wholeness, but death and disease as normal. So sickness and sorrow are the normal conditions of life. Religious people find it hard to remember the echo of Eden where, where creation is brimming and exploding with life. The religious person feels bad for affirming the goodness of creation. He doesn't want to enjoy things too much, or if he does, he, feel, he feels bad about it, right? He or she uh, doesn't like beautiful music on its own terms. He needs certain lyrics to make music worthy. On occasion, religious people have rituals like a 
like a bonfire to burn secular music or cultural artifacts to show one's commitment that he or she is not tied too tightly to this bad world. Hospitals and clinics are seen as necessary, but only as a result of one's religious duty. Health and wholeness are not considered worthy objectives in and of themselves. Now, between these two extremes, right, death-denying or life-denying, stands Christianity. Because of the crucifixion of Jesus, God's attitude of life and death are radically redefined. The crucifixion gives us a new lens of interpretation for the rest of life, for all of life. So on one hand, Christians can be honest about death, right? We don't have to deny it. We, we look at the cross, we see its ugliness, hands were pierced, blood poured from the Savior's brow. An innocent person was murdered, executed unjustly. I mean, this is sad. We lament, we cry. We don't deny death. In fact, we remember it. We commemorate it. We don't act like polite people who say it is bad form to speak about the horror of the Savior's death at the dinner table, right? We don't, we don't shelter our children from the reality of death or make them believe that Disney World is the reality in which they're growing up into, right? When we are at funerals, we grieve. Listen, Christians are not strong when they refrain from crying at a funeral. Tears are our way of saying that death is real, but it's not okay. Jesus wept when his friend Lazarus died, and so we do too. Instead of running away from death, we look it square in the eyes, and we even give up our life when necessary. The goal is not to live forever or to spend our money to ensure that we do but to unite ourselves to Christ on the cross. But at the same time, while our grief may be deeper since we don't deny death, our joy is also bigger because there is a, a fundamental goodness to this life insofar as God is the creator of this material universe. And he's given all things to us as a habitat of blessing He has given humanity a suitable home in which to dwell and to know and serve him. And when we look at the cross, while we see its ugliness, we also see its beauty. Even the ugly can be converted into something redemptive. Listen, follow my logic here. In Christ's death, death itself was converted into something different. It moved from being an end to be a beginning. The crucifixion of Jesus was not ordinary. See, in dying, Jesus put death to death. You hear that? Jesus put death to death. Death is not the final chapter of history. The nails used to pierce his hands, those nails in themselves are good tools. They will be refurbished and used to construct beautiful homes. The planks of wood on which Jesus hung can be reused to provide shelter for the weary or to create a frame for a splendid work of art. Now, can you see why Christians look at the cross, which is a tool for execution, and say, the cross is beautiful? 
The cross gives us an imagination. Whose death can defeat death? Right? In a strange way, because of the crucifixion, the death of Jesus is the most life-affirming act of all time. Because of this, life is affirmed. Life is secured through his death. Our maker's world is brimming with goodness. And unlike religious people, Christians can look at this material world and enjoy its goodness. The cross can make even nails and wood beautiful. So let me just kind of recap recap this point. Because of the ironic and spiritual reality of the cross, Christians can live more skillfully in this world. We don't we don't have to deny death and try to live forever. And at the same time, we don't have to deny life. We don't have to be anti-creation. This life is brimming with goodness. Listen, if you deny either life or death, then you will develop weird pathologies. Like, I don't know, like that 85-year-old man who knows he's dying soon, so he buys 25 expensive cars to make him feel like he's alive again. What a small life. There's something not healed in that heart, right? If you are a death denier or a life denier, you will become unbalanced. You will you will live a small life. Without the crucifixion as an interpretive grid, life will drag you to one of those two extremes. But with the cross, we have the intellectual and spiritual lenses to live big, not fearful, big sacrificial lives. All right. Now let me let me conclude with one last reason in which modern people should seriously consider the crucifixion. I, I would even say have a vested interest in it. Humanity's, um, as I've noted so far, is vexed with what I call the dilemma of regret, the dilemma of anger, and of course, what we just finished, the dilemma of denying either denying life or denying death. But perhaps most notably, human beings live with a dilemma of security. Now, when I talk about security, I'm not talking about safety. I am referring to the mega question. Am I loved? Am I lovable? Will you bail out on me when you find out what I am really like? Can I ever be secure? When we think of definitions of real love, we often think about our emotions, desires, and actions lining up and being placed on another person. The problem, of course, is that there's often a disconnect between our emotions and our actions. And so it's often the case that a spouse or boyfriend or girlfriend will leave the other person with this explanation. I fell out of love, right? Even friendships end like this. This is a very capricious definition of love, but it is most certainly the most widely practiced version of love in our culture. When relationships get difficult, people bail on each other and then the 
haunting question returns. Am I loved? This is a human question. You might have heard me uh, share this story before, but a few years ago, I, I read a story about Madonna who was giving a concert in her hometown, New York, at Madison Square Garden. There were thousands of people going crazy. But on that particular night, she was she was not at her best. She was messing up the choreography and her dance routine. She missed a few lyrics. She was not sharp at all. So at one point, she stops the band. She, she, she stops the whole concert. She walks up towards the crowd, like almost in defeat. She sits down on the edge of the stage. She looks at the crowd and she says very, very vulnerably, she says, guys, I'm just not feeling it tonight. This is my hometown. You guys love me, right? You guys love me, right? I love that she asked that question. I mean, this is Madonna, a cultural icon, and she is asking the question, am I loved? Are thousands of rabidly screaming fans not enough to have security? No, not at all. In our modern culture, we are offered no assurance, no security of love. How so? Well, you can never be perfectly sure that someone truly loves you until you disappoint them or fail them and then see how they respond. Mark Twain once wrote it like this. He says, no man or woman knows what true love is until they've been married 20, for 25 years. Why? Because in 25 years, you have plenty of time to radically disappoint another person and see if they stick with you. <laughs> and the dilemma is, is humanity, us, we are built for secure love. And yet we can't find it. We will do anything to feel it, even for a moment. We are like electric appliances with plugs looking for wall sockets to plug into to get refilled with juice except the electricity we need is love and so we take our plug and we and we plug it into all kinds of things hoping hoping to feel loved we plug into our children make me feel loved we plug into our physical appearance our sexual performance make me feel lovable we, we plug into our bank accounts. We, we plug into our intellectual prowess, our, our wine glasses. Somebody, something, make me feel whole. Make me lovable. Give me security that I am enough. Crickets. Our culture offers no security. And with time, we become pathologically distorted humans looking for secure love in a desert of counterfeits because we desperately need it. We were built for it. Where can we find it? Our experience of secure love only comes when there is a continued unflinching embrace in the face of real disappointment and failure. Listen, if you've checked out, this is why you, modern person, need the crucifixion to be true. Whether you know it or not, 
you have a vested interest in me being totally right about this. Listen, to your question, am I loved? You have a resounding yes from your Father in heaven. But but you say to me, Ronnie, I am an expert in disappointing God. You have no idea the stuff that I've been into. And God says, I know. My love endures in the face of your radical failure. But how can we know for sure? The crucifixion. The crucifixion is not simply that Jesus died on a cross. It interprets what that death means for you. The crucifixion is the story that God totally knew what he was signing up for when he decided to love you. And he did it anyway. While you were still a sinner, an enemy, the Bible says, Jesus died for you. He died for you, not because you were good enough. He didn't sit back and say, huh, is he good enough? Is she good enough? Does he qualify? No, it was, I will send my son to die for you so that your failures are couched in a bigger narrative of enduring and persevering love. Your failures do not dissuade the fierce love of Christ. The cross is evidence of God's continued embrace in the face of radical disappointment and radical failure. When we ask, am I loved? The cross says, yes, yes, you are loved. And this love is the only love that is secure enough to hold the weight of your failures. Listen, it was Jesus who lived the good life that you should have lived. It was Jesus who died the death that you should have died, that you deserved. And Christianity teaches that Jesus was willingly crucified to offer you a love big enough to rest your soul. Listen, I I don't know, I don't know if you believe what I have said tonight. But if you could get your heart around it, even if you still struggle with doubt, you would at least want the crucifixion to be true. May God bless you this Good Friday. Amen.